Passing Dimes is proud to welcome a new partner to the show, Momentum Pro Camps. Momentum Pro Camps runs volleyball camps across Ontario, bringing professional athletes, coaches, and resources to communities, clubs, and partners. Momentum's mission is to inspire and develop high performers for life, and they're doing just that. Unfortunately, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Momentum has suspended all programming until permitted by local public health recommendations. However, they have developed incredible future programming for athletes to benefit from and are excited to share it with all of you when we can play again. Follow us on social media at Momentum Pro Camps for updates and details on future programs or email us at contact at MomentumProCamps.com. Stay excellent, friends. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. He's going to have a, a busy week ahead of him because he's off to a training camp, and then he's off to help Team Canada qualify for Tokyo at the qualifier in June in Germany. So today's guest joined our national team in 2012. He took a little bit of a break before rejoining, uh, excuse me, returning to the team in 2015. He helped us win a bronze in Peru. Uh, he was playing professional basketball in Germany before... COVID hit, and he was going to help us again qualify for Tokyo. Glad that's back on. Please welcome to the show, Derek Samonowitz. Derek, thanks for doing this, man. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Derek, we usually start with a little bit of a timeline. So, for listeners not familiar with with Team Canada sitting or maybe your career, just let us know, where did you grow up and, like, what other sports were you interested in before volleyball became, like, your full-time passion? Okay. Uh, grow up stuff. So, I was born in, in Poland um, in a small city called Prudnik. Um bigger town called Opola. I'm sure that none of your listeners really know where that is. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't really try to point it on the map for you either if I tried. But uh, when I was seven, we came to Canada and I um, we landed in Toronto. I've been in Toronto ever since as my home city. Um, when I was younger, uh, in elementary school, I remember the first school we went to uh, in about grade five, I tried out for our volleyball team. And unfortunately, I, I didn't make it, you know, as, as happens to a lot of us. Um, that same year, we ended up uh, changing locations. I started at a new school the following year. Tried out again, and luckily this time I, I made it for the team. I remember we went to a tournament and, and we played our old school. And uh, luckily we beat them. And I remember my coach coming up to us after and being like, oh, man, Derek, Derek really should have been on our team. And in my mind, I'm just like, well, you cut me. I don't really understand. <laughs> so that's the thought process when, when you cut me the year before. But uh, it felt good to, I guess, um, you know, have that coach have regrets of, of cutting me back then. I met my coach in the new school, was, uh, Miss Pietras. Uh, she was the one that kind of turned me into club volleyball, onto club volleyball. Um, you know, around grade seven, grade eight, I started playing club. Um, with a few different clubs. I played for Thistletown. I played for JCC Blues. There might have been another one in there that I can't quite remember right now. But um, so, yeah, you know, volleyball was my main passion growing up. I played club. I went to high school. I, I coached my uh, our junior boys team when I was uh, a senior. Um, I was a certified referee. Um, played, like, was my major passion. I did a lot of other sports as well. Um, you know, growing up, I did like track and field. Uh, I played basketball. I pretty much did any sport that my school offered. Um, wasn't a big fan of, of staying in class. So anytime that I could, you know, do a sport that would allow me to, um, I guess, miss classes, I was I was all for that. Um, and then 
after high school, I got into the, to the working career, um, didn't really play as much sports or not organized sports at the time. Um, and then back in 20, uh, 2008, I was involved in a motorcycle accident. Um, I was going straight through a green light. There was a truck coming the opposite way. He made a left turn in front of me, slowed down and missed the truck. Um, as he was turning, unfortunately, I saw he was towing a trailer. Luckily, it was a flatbed and not one of the big box ones. So I tried to avoid that. Um, I couldn't really swerve to avoid. I tried to brake. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't brake in time. I ended up hitting the trailer and I, uh, I went over. Uh, you know, witnesses said I was 30 feet in the air. I don't really have a whole lot of recollection of the actual flying through the air. But, you know, I came to on the ground. I remember um, the first thought I was I was going uh, I was going home for lunch from work. So I remember my first thought being like, "Oh no, I, I have to let work know that I can't come back." Uh, so this off-duty firefighter was there with me and, and was helping me through the process. I remember pulling my phone out of my pocket and calling work, letting them know what's happening. And then the ambulance came, and in the ambulance, I remember calling my my parents at the time. I was like, I think I was twenty-six. They called my mom, and I'm like, "Yeah, you know." I, Got into an accident. Like, don't worry about it. Just come to the hospital. They're taking me Sunnybrook. Like, it'll be fine. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, 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 of course. Like, let alone here. Here I am, like, laying on a gurney. My leg's in not great shape. Um, luckily for me, that was my major um, injury was, was my right leg. Um, <laughs> funny enough, I remember laying on the floor at, uh, on the ground at that accident and I had a motorcycle jacket on. I had my protective gear on as much as I could. And the, one of my thoughts was that I wanted to save this $600 motorcycle jacket. I didn't want the, the paramedics to, to cut me out of it. So the first paramedics come in and talking to me. And I'm like, man, please, please don't cut me out of the jacket. And I'm like, he's like, okay, fine. So I'm like squirming and moving around. And like, obviously at this point, like nobody really knows what my injuries are. And like, neither do I, right? So I'm like trying to pull my arm out of my sleeve. And I finally like, the second I get my right arm out of my sleeve, another paramedic comes up and just like cuts me out of my left one. And I'm like, oh, well. <laughs> you know, at the time I was a little frustrated, but like looking back on it, I, I totally understand why I did it. Like I could have had a spinal cord injury. I could have been making it worse by all this moving around I was doing. Um, but, you know, the next, uh, the next few years for me after that were really focused on rehabilitation and, and getting better. Um, you know, I went to the hospital, they, stitched me back together as well as they could. They stuck some metal in my leg to keep my bone together. And uh, for the first year, I was zero weight bearing, which meant I, I wasn't even allowed to touch my foot on the ground. I was walking around on crutches and getting along as, uh, getting on as much as well as I could. Um, you know, I was doing physio several times a week. I was seeing a, um, an occupational therapist and just trying to get back to what I considered my normal life. And, um, Three years into my rehab, uh, we were deemed, I was deemed uh, that to have reached my maximum medical recovery at that point. And uh, that hit pretty hard. Uh, I realized that I wasn't going to have the same life that I had before. I was, um, I was walking around on a cane. I could stand for maybe 10 minutes. I could walk for about 150 meters. So it was quite a drastic change from the life I was used to as a an active 26 year old. I was playing a lot of sports with friends and, you know, I was like, I would say almost semi-pro playing paintball, like uh, like tournament paintball. Um, so that came hit me pretty hard. I, I, I slipped into depression and, 
got stuck there for for a little while, at least at least over a year. Uh, in 2012, I was working with a rehabilitation. Actually, in 2011, I was working with a rehabilitation support worker and an occupational therapist, and uh, they were trying to get me to do more than just sit in my basement and doing nothing. So he had tried some different activities for us to try. He was trying to brainstorm about things I, I enjoyed beforehand. So volleyball obviously came up, uh, basketball came up. So I remember first we ended up trying um, to go to Variety Village in Toronto and to try wheelchair basketball. So at the time, uh, the mobility in my knee wasn't very good. Uh, I, couldn't, I didn't have full flexion. So, you know, for me, wheelchair basketball didn't seem like it was going to be feasible. As like, it'd be difficult for me to bend my leg enough to get under me to sit in a wheelchair. Um, but nonetheless, we went out to VV and uh, got in a chair. I ended up getting on the court and pretty much sat right under the basket. And I took my first shot and I missed the basket by two feet. I was two feet short, like air ball. I'm like, okay, no problem. Just give it a little more juice. Jeremy runs around, gets the gets the ball from me, throws it back to me. I'm like, all right, let me get this one in. Shoot again. Same exact result. Missed by two feet. Didn't come close. Didn't hit rim, anything. So third shot. I'm like, all right, I'm definitely going to get this one. Exact same result. I'm like, all right, well, maybe wheelchair basketball isn't for me. So, um, you know, we kept trying to find different things that I would enjoy. We did a lot of swimming at the time. Uh, it's a very low-impact activity. You know, by the end of it, I was swimming like two and a half K a day. Um, trying to stay as active as possible. But then uh, he also knew that, you know, volleyball was, was something that I did when I was younger. And he ended up finding um, a drop-in in Toronto that played sitting volleyball. And up to that moment, I had literally never heard of the sport sitting volleyball, did not know it existed, didn't know it was a thing at all. So one day he dragged me out of my house and is like, we're going to go and try the sitting volleyball thing. Uh, at the time, the drop-in was running at Scadden Court, which is at Bathurst and Dundas in Toronto. And uh, we went down there. Uh, Jason Naval was the one that was running it. He's an ex-national team player. Uh, he was around back then. Uh, so he was the one that was really uh, spearheading everything. And I believe that uh, Ray Sewell was actually in town for some reason. Uh, that was our ex-national team coach, uh, the current coach at the time, back in 2012, 2011. So uh, at the time, I was pretty heavy, and you know my mobility sucked and wasn't great. But like you know, I had a little bit of volleyball background from before, so he maybe saw a little potential in me. Started to play around a bit. I did some specific stuff with Ray, did some stuff with the group, and decided that yeah, you know, this is something I enjoy. Um, Jeremy kept forcing me to go week after week, and eventually I started to, to build more of a friendship with the people that were there. And then that was in about, uh, I'd say, like March, April of 2011. And about, I think it was in the wintertime of 2011, there was a tournament that was going to be put on in Omaha in the States, and we decided to, to put a team in. So uh, three of us drove down from Toronto to Omaha to participate in this tournament. We got put on a team with a bunch of other random players. And uh, yeah, we just went down there and had a great time. You know, I found out that uh, the following year in May of 2012, uh, that there was going to be a national tryout for Team Canada. And I decided that, you know, I'm going to keep training and go to this tryout. Luckily it was in Toronto. So the cost for me would have been minimal and I wanted 
to give it a go and see if I could make this team. So in uh, May of 2012, went to the tryouts, which were being held at the Toronto Convention Center down by the CNE grounds. And after a grueling week of, you know, <laughs> pushing around on the floor and scooting and, you know, feeling like I wasn't necessarily a very skilled sitting volleyball player compared to a lot of these other national team athletes at the time. Somehow I managed to, to secure a spot on the team. And uh, that was the first time that I, I made Team Canada. I was really excited and, and gung-ho and came back home and continued to train. Uh, until, I think, 2014, we ended up going to a last chance qualifier in China. Uh Unfortunately, we did not qualify. It was, I believe it was a six or seven team tournament and only one team went. Unfortunately, that wasn't us. Uh, so at the time, I believe in that tournament as well, uh, there was some issues with me classifying. Um, it's difficult for me to explain to you the classification system. It's, it's quite convoluted if you ask me. I don't really know all the regulations. But um, according to them, I wasn't disabled enough to play. So at that moment, I decided that um, I was going to try to change my life a little bit. I felt like up to that moment, I was kind of kind of stuck a bit with my mobility and my quality of life. Um, because of being around with all these high-functioning amputees um, through sitting volleyball, I was exposed to what my life could have been as, you know, as opposed to what it was. You know, when we were going from when we're going to competitions or training camps and when we're walking from say the hotel to the car, to the venue, like anything like that, I was always the last guy. I was always slowing everyone down in my mind. I'm like, I'm dealing with chronic pain. I have like limited mobility. Like why am I trying to hold on to this limb? That's really like holding me back. So around that time I went to my doctor and I finally said, I'm like, look, we gotta, we gotta do something. I know that you guys don't want to do a knee replacement cause I'm too young, but like, we gotta do something. We either gotta do knee replacement or we gotta do amputation. I don't really care. I'm done with, you know, being stuck in, uh, in a body that I feel like isn't really providing what I needed to do. So the doctor looked back at me in the eye and he's like, all right, well, you know, if we try, if we try knee replacement, we can always do amputation later. If we do amputation right now, we'll never be able to try knee replacement. I'm like, well, yeah, that, that's logical. makes sense to me. So we decided that we were going to go the knee replacement route. I believe that was 2014, like late, maybe summer of 2014. Got my knee replacement done. Started the whole rehab process again. Was finally able to get off the cane and start walking around under my own power without having as much pain. And I'm like, yes, life is great again. And then slowly I started to lose the range of motion in my knee. I wasn't able to get full extension anymore. Went back to the doctor. He took a needle, took some samples from my knee, sent them off. Turns out there's an infection. So he explains to me that because I have an artificial joint in my leg at this point, um, the bacteria forms um, a biofilm over that. So if we give you oral antibiotics, there's no way for them to penetrate through the metal and get to the bacteria. And there's no way for them to get from the outside because they create a biofilm. So the only process to get rid of this infection is to literally remove the artificial joint um, and then eventually replace it with a new one. But in the meantime, they would have to put in uh, a cement spacer that was infused with antibiotics 
that would lock my knee in a straight position, so I'd have absolutely like no mobility with my with my right leg. Um, they'd also have to uh, insert a pick line, which is uh, a tube that they put in to your vein uh, through my bicep, pretty much, and it runs directly to my heart because they had to put me on um, on um, on antibiotics. So they were. I had a pump, an antibiotic pump that was literally pumping antibiotics into my body 24 um, seven. And it's, it's so corrosive that if they didn't insert the pick line that it would have just ate away my, uh, my veins. So they did that. Um, so I was with the, that pump getting the antibiotics changed every day. I had a nurse come over, um, take care of that. Um, and, uh, that lasted for about the better part of three months. So after the three months go by, I go back to my doctor and um, is it great? Uh, this is looking great. The infection is getting taken care of. Unfortunately, we're going to have to add two more surgeries. So at this point, I've, I've been through so many surgeries that the skin on my right knee uh, is very thin and prone to infection. And it would take a really long time for the wounds to heal. So they were thinking about doing almost like a graft where they cut a, a triangular piece of out of my upper thigh that's still connected. And then it would rotate it down over my knee and, and uh, stitch back up. And then um, that would be the one surgery. And then after that one was healed, they would put like uh, kind of like a balloon underneath the skin to expand it. So there was enough room for the joint, uh, for the artificial joint to go in. And when he told me that that process was going to take another two years, that was the moment that I decided that it was time to, to go amputation. At this point, I'd already been, this was seven years into the process of recovery at that point. And I was like, I'm done trying to be, uh, trying to fix a problem that in my mind was never going to get fixed. Um, I decided to take control of my life and uh, told the doctor that it's time to amputate. So this was back in um, 2015 when the uh, Pan Am Games were going to be happening in Toronto. So we did the amputation, uh, I believe that was June of 2015. And I think it was August that the games were supposed to, or July, July, the games were supposed to happen in Toronto at the Toronto Pan Am Center uh, at Morningside and the 401. And um, did the amputation, started rehab, went into rehab um, at St. John's. And my goal for them was that I was able to walk in and support my teammates and my friends um, in these games in, in Toronto. And She's like, well, that's a very lofty goal. These games are like two weeks away or four weeks away or whatever it was. And I'm like, I understand they're lofty, but you know, these are my goals. This is what I want to do. So um, started working away. And, you know, at first when I was, uh, it was two weeks before I believe they took the stitches out and they fit me for a, pro, for a socket and for a prosthetic device. And now I was doing my same thing. It was like occupational therapy. It was like 30 minutes a day. And then there was like physio that was 30 minutes a day. And like the rest of the day, you're just in your room or on the grounds, not really doing a whole lot of anything. And I'm like, well, like if I just keep doing this, I don't feel like I'm going to progress very much. So I just started to, to ask my physio if, if I can do more, if there's more activity that I can do. There's, there was this, uh, it's almost like a stationary bike, but it's not quite, I don't know exactly what it's called, but it has two pedals. Um, it's got two uh, handles. So like you grab the handles with your hands you put your feet on the pedals and you just slide back and forth and it just at least gets you moving a bit. Right. So by the end of it, I was doing that for 
you know, 30, 40 minutes a day, plus my physio that I was able to like extend from 30 minutes to about 45 to an hour kind of thing. And just kept working towards my goal. And uh, lo and behold, I was able to, to walk into the, to the Pan Am games. And, and I, I believe I watched every one of my team's games, except for one, I believe was against um, Costa Rica. I think that was the only game I didn't watch. It was uh, it was a heartbreaker. I watched uh, I watched my team lose in uh, in the semifinals against the U.S. It was a very hard fought battle. If they had won that game, uh, the team would have qualified for uh, Rio. But um, unfortunately, it wasn't uh, it wasn't our day, and, and we lost. And um, so when our team didn't qualify, uh, a few of our athletes decided to to give wheelchair basketball a try. I believe that. Um, because we didn't qualify, our funding got cut a bit. There was less opportunities for us to train and, and do camps and that kind of stuff. So we decided to go give wheelchair basketball a try. Luckily, um, the Toronto Pan Am Center has the national training center, is the national training center for the national team for wheelchair basketball. And Mike Frogley is uh, the director slash coach of that team. And uh, yeah, he, he allowed us to, to start coming and, and training with them. And I, I remember when we first started, I was there was four of us that went. You know, um, one of the guys was a really good shooter. Another guy was like really quick and nimble. Another guy had like all around basketball game, and it was that was me. I was low man on the totem pole, could not do anything. Like <laughs> I ended up having this uh, this wheelchair that really didn't fit me at all. I remember my teammates describing me as a, a bear riding a unicycle, like you would see in um, in a circus. It was, it was quite comical, but besides the point, I started to use that just as, as cross-training for volleyball originally. I didn't really ever think that anything would come of it wheelchair basketball-wise. But, uh, you know, I, I, pretty, I decided that I was just going to keep going and, and keep grinding and, and see, you know, see if it's going to help me stay in shape for volleyball or whatever's going to happen. First year in, that's, that's the only way I saw it. Second year in, I started to get, like, you know, maybe a little bit better. And then by the fourth year, you know, I was on the team. Uh, I was on the Division Two team. Uh, we went to the, the NWBA championship, which is um, the NWBA is a wheelchair basketball league that's host, uh, that's held um, that's based out of the U.S. So uh, our team, the Toronto Rolling Raptors, went down. We've obviously played a tournament, like a lot of tournaments leading up to that point. We went down to the U.S. and played our championship tournament. And after a long few days of playing, we ended up in the finals and we actually win the whole thing. And, you know, I was a starter in pretty much all those games. I'm not going to say I was a, a huge scorer, but I felt like, you know, I learned how to play with my teammates. I learned how to play with, you know, all different kinds of teammates of different abilities. You know, like obviously we had some really good shooters like uh, Kitty Dadno was, was a great shooter. Erica Gavel, a great shooter. Um, you know, we had a lot of uh, a couple good low uh, low um, low point players. Um, like points are like wheelchair basketball is different than sitting volleyball. There's each athlete is assigned a point value depending on their disability. So the lowest point value you can be is a 1.0. The highest point value you can be is a 4.5. So a lower uh, a person that is more disabled would have a lower point value person that is less disabled would have a higher point value 
Um, and then you're only allowed a specific amount of points on the court at any given time. In this tournament, I believe it was 16 points. In internationally, you're only allowed 14 points. So like, um, you know, a single baloney amputee would be considered as a, a 4.5 um, because I was a, an above knee amputee where my residual limb was less than a third of uh, what it originally was. I was classed down to a 4.0. And uh, yeah, like I was, I was there. I helped... Um, I helped my team get that that gold medal, and it felt really good. We uh, then the whole, during this whole time, I, I continued training volleyball in Toronto. Um, and I was living in a condo downtown. Luckily, the the condo I lived in had uh, an amenities building that was amazing. It had um, a half court basketball court in it, um, and uh, it also had a volleyball court. So I was able to to book that facility to to train there without any cost incurred, which was great. So I had uh, several guys in Toronto as well training with me at the time. And uh, yeah, we just kept grinding and grinding and grinding. And, um, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember a tournament that, um, that I went to in Montreal with my team. And <laughs> this was the time that I was training wheelchair basketball as well. And I remember I was speaking to one of my teammates, Nick, Nick Gonchin, who's currently on the national wheelchair basketball team that's going to Tokyo. And I remember talking to him on the time. He's like, yeah, I mean, like, how do you think this tournament's going to go? I'm like, yeah, I think it's going to go pretty well. Like, I've been grinding. I think that I've, like, earned my starting spot. Um, you know, I invite my, my family and, my, and my, my girlfriend at the time to come down to, to watch because, you know, Montreal is not that far away from Toronto. And they decided to come down and, and watch me. So my mom's there, my, my niece came, my sister came, my girlfriend's there. And I and I remember just being like, yeah, okay, let's go. So the coach writes the first starting lineup and I'm not on the starting lineup. Don't really play very much in this tournament. I think, I believe I played about maybe three, four sets max. Like I might be overestimating by how much I played. And I, I was, I remember being quite frustrated with, um, with my level of play and my level of opportunity to, to help my team be successful. And that was the, the time that I decided to, I guess, make a shift. I had a choice to make either I step away from volleyball or I decide to train at a different level. Right. Up to that point, um, you know, I've been training as much as my other teammates in Toronto. You know, if, um, if the guys would tell me that they wouldn't be able to train, then sometimes I just be like, okay, fine, we won't go today. I remember uh, that tournament being the catalyst. Like after that tournament, if they told me that, yeah, I'm not able to train, I'm like, that's fine. Like I'll still be in the gym. Started doing one man sessions and um, trying to focus a lot more on myself as opposed to what everybody else was doing. And uh, come Peru, I, I was a starter. I was a, I was a pivotal player. We were able to go to Peru and. Um, and win bronze. Uh, we needed to we needed to win gold in order to qualify for Tokyo. So unfortunately, we weren't able to qualify then. But you know, it was still good showing for our team. I feel we I feel like we performed fairly well. We we went uh, we took a set off of Brazil. It was the first um, I believe it was the first time we'd done that. Uh, Brazil is a very strong team in our zone. And um, the other three sets that we lost against Brazil were, were very tight. I believe they were all within two points, except for the, uh, except for the fourth set where we lost, I think at that point was, uh, 25, 12 or something like that. We had, uh, 
yeah. So apart from that, it was it was a it was a really good showing. Yeah, after Peru, I decided that I was going to try to go and play uh, professional wheelchair basketball in Europe. So while I was in Peru, I uh, actually before Peru, I um, I prepared a, a highlight video of of all my playing from the various leagues that I would play in wheelchair basketball, and I posted up on YouTube and. Uh, I went on the IWBF website and I posted my profile saying that I'm looking for a team. And I negotiated with, I was negotiating with three or four different teams and finally decided to settle on um, uh, the Cologne, uh, Cologne 99ers in Germany. Went over there uh, in September. So like the tournament, I literally came home from Peru and two weeks later I was back on a, on a plane to go to Germany. So Landed in Germany and, and started grinding away at wheelchair basketball. I uh, reached out to to Dominic, one of the guys uh, that is a current uh, national team players on the German team. And I was like, hey, you know, like I'm in Germany right now. I'm trying to see if there's any training opportunities for me in, in Germany while I'm here. If this is the city I'm in, please let me know if there's like any opportunities. So luckily... Uh, he is a member of a club team that plays, uh, it's about 30 minutes away from the city I was in. Uh, he plays in Leverkusen, which is, yeah, 30 minutes away from Cologne. And he invited me to come to their practices. So uh, I could only go on the days that didn't conflict with my, um, with my training for wheelchair basketball. So unfortunately, I was only able to go once a week. They were training there three times a week. And I was like, oh, this is a great environment. There's a lot of guys that are that are better than me that I could learn from in this situation. So I finished uh, I finished our, our basketball season. Uh, we were supposed to have uh, in March. We were supposed to start our, our playoffs uh, for basketball, but we were also still supposed to go to Oklahoma for a last chance qualifier for volleyball for sitting volleyball again, and. Uh, Unfortunately, this is the time that the pandemic started. Um, I remember the day before, maybe two days before, I was supposed to get on a plane and go to Oklahoma. Uh, the U.S. had announced that they're closing borders with Italy, which was having a huge outbreak of COVID at the time. And uh, we started to panic that uh, Toronto or Canada would do the same thing. So we decided, uh, our team decided that we're not going to go and take part in this tournament. The tournament got canceled and got postponed till February of 2021. Yeah, at that point, we just tried to, uh, as soon as we could, book a flight for literally like three days later. This was on like a Thursday. Ended up flying home on Sunday. Um, and yeah, I came back to, to Toronto and it was, it was quite a... Um, so yeah, so I was to my sister's place. And uh, yeah, built that board, and I was you know going in the backyard when the weather is nice, and, and and playing pepper with myself against that board. Uh, I was doing a lot of like ball control stuff in the basement when I when I could, and um, yeah, just just kept doing individual training. Um, and then once a little bit of this restrictions eased up, I, I reached out to Dominic again in Germany, and I asked if I could come down and, and train with his club team. Um, so I reached out to him. He, he put me in contact with the coach and uh, the director. And yeah, it came out that I, I could go down there and I could train. So in September, I decided that I was going to go down to Germany again. Uh, I booked a flight, 
secured uh, housing and all that stuff. Uh, this time it was all on my own dime. Um, went down there and started training volleyball three days a week, uh, minimum two hours of practice session. And then uh, while I was there, the, I got in contact with the national team coach and they were running training camps usually every, every two weeks. So around November, they started inviting me to the training camps with their national team as well. And I was able to, uh, to be in that environment. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really cool. It was cool to see what another country's training level is like, um, and to see my own growth, to be honest. So like I said, uh, before the, the tournament that we were training towards for the qualifier for Tokyo, had been postponed till February of 2021. So I planned to stay there from September to February, train full time and, and compete in this tournament in February uh, because it was going to be hosted in Germany at that point. Uh, but in December, when COVID uh, took a turn for the worse and um, yeah, the situation became a little more difficult. Like uh, I decided, they decided that the tournament was going to be postponed again to June. Um, so at that time I had to make a decision of staying there or coming back home. And, uh, unfortunately we're not allowed to stay out of the country for more than six months in a given 12 month time. So I decided in December to come back home and again, a shell shock situation where I went from training three to five days a week, if not more, probably like 10 plus hours a week of training back to getting home and, and really having no opportunities to train. So I sat at my house for maybe a week and then I decided that I'm, I'm going to change what's happening. Uh, I'm going to take control of my situation and, and, and do what I can to make it better. So I reached out to a bunch of people. Um, I, I reached out to, to Joe Millage. Um, I, I reached out to uh, Steve Bialos uh, at Variety Village. Uh, I reached out to Mike Frogley, my, my old uh, wheelchair basketball um coach with the national training center that trains in at t-pass and i just blasted everyone and i was like hey i'm back in toronto i'm looking to secure court time somewhere so i can get training like um for the general public the use of facilities has been and probably still is prohibited uh luckily as a member of team canada we were able to secure a high performance exemption so uh, on those grounds, I was trying to push for somebody to help, help me secure some court time. Uh, Joe, Joe was able to, to help me out and, um, and offer me something at Variety Village. Uh, and then I was also able to in talks at the same time at uh, Toronto Pan Am Center. And uh, they were able to offer me court time. At, uh, at this time, I was paying for myself. So the court time at Toronto Pan Am Center was a lot less expensive than the one at Variety Village. So we decided to, to start taking the court time at uh, T-Pass. And uh, I started training. That was back in, I believe it was February. And uh, I would literally email, like Stephanie was my contact there. And I would email her on a weekly basis being like, do you have court time? What court time do you have? Like anything you have available, I'll take. Uh, so it started off with maybe like one or two one-hour sessions a week. And, at, you know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had, I believe it was four sessions, five sessions, five sessions in two weeks that were like two hours each. 
Um, a lot of this, these sessions were individual for me. I was, I was just there on my own doing what I can. Um, you know, I ended up buying some, uh, some place pods, which are like, uh, light, light up reactive pods. So I would set those up around a court and like work on my movements so I can become more agile and faster. Uh, I bought pool noodles so I could set them up as, um, makeshift blockers. So when I'm working on my serving, it's not just blasting into an empty court. I'd actually have like realistic lanes as if I would see in a game and just, yeah, took control of my, my situation and, and was trying to make the best of it. And you know, I'm just, just gearing up for, uh, for Germany here in, in a few weeks. Um, we actually leave for a training camp, uh, tomorrow and I'm really excited to get on court with my teammates and, and, and see what we can do to prepare ourselves for this huge tournament. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller, started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel, and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Club Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjason.com, that's C-L-U-B-J-S-O-N.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. This is awesome, man. Thanks so much for for sharing your story. And right now you're the you're the perfect podcast guest because I just have to ask one question, get out of the way, and you take it from there. So thank you so much for <laughs> for all you just shared there. Uh, I do want to circle back a little bit what I had in my notes here. I, I'm curious because we've had other athletes on the show and they mentioned when they have an injury, like the, they have some mental health stuff going on. And to, to hear what you went through and obviously just on, on a bigger scale than say like tearing your ACL or something like that. Yeah. But I'm curious, why was it so important for you to support your teammates at, uh, at the Toronto games? And the reason I asked that is people who were left off the indoor roster, like they mentioned to me, it was really hard for them to even show up at the venue and support their team where you're, yeah. you're the other way where you're injured, but you're like, no, it, it's going to be a goal of mine. I want to be there. I want to be in the front row. I want to be cheering on my squad. So for me specifically, um, my amputation is, I'm going to say different. Like my amputation situation is, is different than what the majority of people go through, right? Um, I feel that I think the reason that a lot of you, those athletes struggle to walk into those venues is because they see it as a loss. It's something that they had before, they loved, they had passion for, but then they experienced a situation that was out of their control and now they lost that aspect of their life. Uh, I went through that when I had my accident back in 2008. So I was involved in, in paintball at a really high level, whatever, um, at a fairly high level. And uh, I remember it was difficult for me to go and see my, my, my team, my teammates playing, my friends playing um, at that time. Um, you know, I, I went through that loss back then when I went through my amputation for me, it was re it was taking control of my life and it was 
uh, was regaining my mobility, was regaining control of the things that I can control. So for me, it was a, my outlook did like a 180 shift, right? It was from uh, a, a vision of, of what I had lost to like now where, where can I go with this and, and, and what I can do in the future. So, you know, like A was just for myself to give myself something to be motivated to work towards, um, you know, to, to be, uh, you know, like in physio and then dealing with the pain and the suffering at the time and like whatever. It, it's a way to just focus on something greater than yourself and, um, and yeah, just, just motivate myself to, to work towards something. So it was a really easy thing for me to, to do at the time. I, I don't fault anyone that, that struggles with that. I, I went through that myself. Um, but mine was just, it happened, you know, in my original accident, as opposed to when I went with my amputation. And I like how you mentioned, uh, the, the expectations that come with like a pair of pan, like if you win, you, you qualify, right? Because our zone is so strong. And I'm curious mm-hmm. as a squad, is that something that's openly talked about? Like that's a goal, that's an expectation, or do you guys try to fight the, the, the old cliche of taking it one game at a time? Or is it something like that's written on the whiteboard in the team room that like, you know, the expectation is to take home a medal every time you guys go to a, a major games like that? Um, <clears throat> so we know that. In, in, 20, um, in 2015 in, in Toronto, uh, up to that point for us, I guess, was the, was the best opportunity for us to qualify. Um, in our zone, there is three strong teams. It's um, us, the U.S., and Brazil. Uh, because the games were being held in Brazil, um, in Rio, Brazil had already qualified. So... We didn't have to beat Brazil. We knew they were going regardless. We just had to beat the U.S. Or I guess the team just had to beat the U.S. at the time. And, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that every every athlete is, is aware of. It's not necessarily something that is, you know, uh, beat into our heads by our coaching staff or anything like that. It's like us as athletes, we, we all strive for greatness and, and we all want to perform when it matters we all have that hunger to to get to that next level is there's a lot of athletes on on this team specifically that have transitioned from uh when when disabled volleyball was a standing game um so i know you had doug on your podcast before and he was one of the athletes that had won a world championship gold medal with the standing team um and like he's been around for at least 14, 15 years at this point. You know, in 2007, our game shift, uh, the pair of volleyball games shifted from having both standing and sitting to just sitting. Uh, they felt like it was a more inclusive game, whereas the standing game, you know, if, if you're uh, if you're a below, if you're a, a leg amputee, uh, then you need a prosthetic device in order to be able to, to compete in that game. Uh, those are very expensive. Uh, like the leg that I use right now is is like eighty three thousand dollars. You know what I mean? Um, so it's it's very, I guess it's they see it as more inclusive to to move to the sitting game where you don't need any other equipment. Amputees don't uh, don't wear the prosthetics. So leg amputees don't wear the prosthetics when they are competing in sitting volleyball. So our team made the shift in two thousand seven to now training uh, sitting, and it was. It was an eye opener. It went from being like one of the best in the world to pretty much 
starting off brand new. We, did, we didn't, they had no idea what we were doing. You know, all, all these tactics that worked in a standing game, like do not work in a sitting game, right? Like uh, there's, there's no jumping. We, we have a rule where uh, a part of, your, uh, part of your torso has to be in contact with the ground. So anywhere from your shoulders down to your bum has to be touching the ground when you actually make contact with the ball. So there, there's no jumping. Uh, the block's just there all the time. There's no time differential as you can, you know. In the standing game, you can run uh, a middle a middle quick, and then you can run a big behind them, right? So if the blocker jumps with the middle, he sets the backcourt ball. If the blocker doesn't jump, he sets the middle, and it's an easy no-man block situation. Whereas in the sitting game, the block's just there all the time. They don't actually have to jump. They just put their hands up, and they're there, right? So it was definitely a learning curve for our team. And uh, so I think Toronto was definitely the best opportunity for our team to qualify up to that point. All we had to do, all we had to do, we had to beat the U.S. as opposed to beating the U.S. and Brazil, right? So because Brazil had already qualified, we only had to come in second place to get our berth in, um, in Rio. So it was a hard-fought battle against the U.S. in the semis, but unfortunately we came up a little bit short. And then, um, you know, in... Uh, in Peru, it was it was a little more difficult, I'd say. Uh, you know, not not only did would we have had to win our, our semifinal game, we would have also had to win the final game against you know two teams that we have never really beat at any high level competition. You know, we might have taken a set off of them here and there, but like I don't think we've ever taken a game off of the U.S. or a game off of uh, Brazil. So we went into it knowing the, these facts, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, when we were working with our sports psych leading up to these competitions, we try to focus on our side of the net as much as possible. You know, control the controllables, and everything else will fall into play. Right? If if we do the level of training that is required of us, um, then nothing else really matters, right? Like, if we are able to read if the block's there or not. You know, we're able to tool them uh, or we're able to do a roll shot to keep the ball in play and stay alive. Um, and it just comes down to, you know, continually progressing, continually increasing our knowledge and eventually getting to a point where, you know, we're, we're top eight in the world and we, and we can go to, um, to a Paralympic Games. And, and take me through the Lima experience, because when you, you lose that semifinal, obviously the, the qualification bid is off the table, but to recover and play a bronze medal match what got you guys fired up for that match? Because I believe uh, in pool play, I think you played Columbia and it went to five. And in this time, uh, I think you swept them. So even though the disappointment sets in and you're not going to reach your goal for everything you guys probably talked about and worked in, how did everybody just fire up again and be ready for that bronze medal match? Because it's not that easy to fire up after a tough semi and knowing that the 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 objective of why you're there is impossible anymore, right? It was, it was definitely tough for us. Um... After the semi, we, we thought we expected a better performance against uh, the U.S. We had lost, uh, like you had mentioned, in the pools. We lost Colombia. Uh, sorry, we, we beat Colombia, but it went to five sets. Um, you know, we felt, I guess maybe maybe some of our guys, like on the big stage is different than, you know, like at practice. Like everybody can, can slam balls at practice. But when, when the lights are on and we're under pressure and like you now have to perform, it's it's a it's a total different game, right? Like, you know, 
Whereas, you know, at practice, you know, a block might be late. Whereas in, in games here, like everyone has that like little bit of extra motivation to make that extra push to get there. So I think we had a certain expectation of how Colombia was going to perform. And to be honest, like we, we came out, we came out two, two laps a days ago. We didn't really, um, we didn't really take it to them when we should have in, in the, in the pool plays. And then, you know, like through that tournament, I feel like our, our, our competitive level built throughout those games. Uh, you know, we played Colombia in, in five. Luckily, we, we took those games. Um, we're able to, to buckle down on the fifth set and beat them. Um, it's a hard fought battle. I, I condone Colombia for, for everything they did. They, they really gave us a run for our money. Um, then, then you know. Then we go and play the U.S. and and we lose three zero, and you know, you know, coming into it, we all knew that we were always going to have to beat the U.S. We were always going to, whether it was in a semifinal game or in a final game, we we needed to beat the U.S. And unfortunately, we didn't perform up to our potential, I believe. And then we go into our semis and again it's the US and it's like this huge monkey on our back I don't know like I think every team has that one team that you know you feel like you may be better than but for whatever reason when the chips are down you struggle uh, to perform at the level um, that you need to whether that's nerves or you know uh, feeling like I don't want to make an error so I'm going to give an easier ball but when you do that, it just makes it easier for the other team to to run their offense, um, and you know, like side out time and time again. Uh, so after after losing the, the semifinal to the um, to the U.S., yeah, we we all <laughs> we I remember having a conversation with our sports psych. We had our meeting, and um, yeah, we we all decided that we were going to come out and, and finally play like like we should. Maybe at that point we have a chip on our shoulder, and you know some guys might, some guys might not. But yeah, we we all knew that we didn't want the same result that happened in the pool plays. Uh, now we had an understanding of what Colombia was going to bring, and uh, we were able to adjust and and focus on our game plan and execute a lot better than we had in, in the previous matches. So I, I think that was the difference. It was just uh, you know we didn't want to leave there with nothing, right? And hopefully Coach Smith doesn't mind you sharing because uh, hopefully you can share some more examples of just uh, the technical, tactical thing. You, you mentioned that the, the sitting game has some very specific things and say the standing game does. So uh, what was some of the, the big things that maybe you focus on that, that you can share on air with us? Like, obviously, you can block a serve. So obviously, the serving strategy is going to be pretty complex. You mentioned there's no time overload. I find when I'm watching City that the rallies get so fast that is it fair to say that everybody on the court has to be confident in setting a high ball because the ball's just flying around so fast? Like, just just what are some examples of, of sitting volleyball that you love and that some tactical things that you really fire up about or that Team Canada is really good at? Mm-hmm. So like the the biggest thing that I love about sitting volleyball is that I feel like it's up till now it's the only sport, only para sport that I have played that is faster than its able-bodied version. So uh, wheelchair basketball is, is a great game, but it's, it's a slower version of, of standing, right? Like um, 
if you watch a, a, a basketball game, you know, they're, they're scoring like NBA, they're scoring a hundred something points a game and a wheelchair basketball game. There's like 50, 60, um, because there's no lateral movement, you know, you have to get your wheelchair up to speed. Sledge hockey, I find is the same. It's, it's a slower version of the able-bodied game. Whereas with sitting volleyball is, is actually so much faster. Um, you know, that's nothing to, not, not a knock against able-bodied volleyball. It's just uh, physics, right? Like our, our standing net is eight feet tall, I believe, around there somewhere. Um, whereas a sitting net uh, for men's height is a meter 15. And for women, I believe is a meter five. So, you know, we hit almost as fast as the standing game does. And the ball just hits the ground so much sooner because you're missing three to four feet of distance. So, you know, if you're not in the right position to dig a ball at that time, like you're not going to have the time to, to shift, to move, and then to make a play, right? You pretty much have to be in the right spot at the right time. You have to be able to, to read what the other team's going to run to be confident in knowing uh, like where your defensive position is, you know, knowing that your, your blocking schematics, like where your blocking scheme is, uh, that we're going to be able to execute, trust your blockers to be in that position, then know that you're going to be sitting in the gaps, um, you know, and, um, and be able to, to dig that ball. Like you mentioned about everybody being confident, being able to set a high ball. Like it's so important. Uh, our setter, Austin Hinchy is amazing. He's, he's, he's really fast. He actually ended up uh, winning the gold ball for, for the best setter in the tournament. Our libero, uh, Mick, I don't want to butcher his last name, so I'm not going to try. Uh, <laughs> Mick got like uh, top libero, got the gold ball for that as well. So, you know, that, that really helped uh, in scramble situations, guys chasing down balls and, and keeping balls in play where, you know, I feel like in, in these past games in Peru, uh, our team is more scrambly than it has been in the past, like keeping balls up a lot more than they, than we have in, in previous matches, um, which is very important, right? If, if, you know, if the block's not able to close and then like, you know, especially in the middle, like if your block's not able to close, knowing that, you know, we don't want you to dive over and, and try to close that seam, just, just go straight up and, and let our defense play in seams, right? It's a lot of it just comes down to, um, like volleyball IQ, right? We have we have athletes in in our system of of different ability levels, of, of different volleyball backgrounds, and I think that's the major difference as well. Where you know uh, when you talk about the men's national program uh, at the standing game, like all those guys have been in the volleyball system pretty much their whole life, right? They started off you know, playing maybe elementary or high school or whatever, got into the club system. And, you know, maybe got it like on the NEP team and, and eventually, you know, onto the, onto the national team. But in the sitting game, because of our athlete pool being much smaller, you know, it's, you, you never know when someone's going to acquire an injury, right? We only have on our team, uh, currently we only have one person on the roster that is a congenital injury, uh, congenital, which is somebody that had their uh, impairment from birth. Everybody else is acquired, um, you know, through an accident or uh, an illness or, or something, a combination of the both of, of the two, right? So, uh, not everybody on our team had 
a volleyball background when they came in, right? Like, uh, there's a lot of guys that are quite athletic and have played other sports. You know, some guys have played hockey, some guys have played basketball, but like not everybody has played volleyball. So I think the biggest, um, hurdle for, for us to have overcome was to try to get those guys that have never really understood volleyball at that level to, you know, to try to expedite their, their learning curve and their, and their, and their game IQ to a level where, you know, even when we're at training so that they can compete at a level high enough where they're able to like, you know, rally with, with the starting six so that we can get, you know, good competition and, um, you know, and, and practice at a level that we play, right? Like I think that's the most important thing in high performance sports is that usually you play like you practice, which means you should practice like you play, right? So, you know, if you're going up against uh, players that, you know, aren't able to, you know, dig, dig balls or, you know, dig your, uh, or pat, uh, receive your serves or, or set an in-system ball, uh, when you're rallying against the starting six, then it's it's not really uh, an effective uh, training exercise, I guess, is, is the best way to phrase it. Um, so I think that's the, been the biggest tool to, to or like hurdle for us to have to have overcome was you know growing those those athletes and for myself specifically, um, like after that experience in Montreal where. You know, I had my family come and I, I feel like I felt a little embarrassed after the fact, to be honest. You know, I, I bragged to them that I was this great volleyball player that was training all this time. And, you know, I was going to have them come and watch me start and play and, you know, contribute to my team, uh, to my team's success. And, uh, yeah, they, they, you know, they were very supportive. And they're like, no, you played fine. Like, it's you, you played OK. Like, it's it's nothing. I'm like. No, but in my mind, I'm just like, well, no, like I'm frustrated. I need to do more. I need to figure out what's lacking in myself. Like, why am I not one of the guys that's on the court kind of situation, right? And then, like, even more embarrassing than that. So, like, I was telling you that I was training with uh, with Nick Gonchin at the time, and like going into that tournament, I remember telling him the same thing that, like, yeah, I'm definitely going to start like 100%. I remember going back home and like going back to the national training center, going to the gym, and I remember like seeing Nick. And like, he's like, yeah, Derek, man, what's up, man? Like, how'd the tournament go? And I remember having to tell him that, yeah, I, I sat, like I sat on the bench. That was it. I was, I was a bench warmer. And I, I, I remember being quite embarrassed by that. But at the same time, I wasn't going to lie. I wasn't going to try to cover up the situation. I was just like, yep, I, I was wrong. I thought I was a starter and, and I wasn't. And for me, that, that was the catalyst. I, I, after that, you know, I, I came home and the decision for me was either going to be step away from volleyball or do more, right? Figure out what's lacking in my game. Clearly there was something that was missing. Otherwise I would have been on the court. Um, it was, uh, it wasn't easy to, to look inside and, and to admit to yourself that, you know, you aren't as great as you think you are. Right. Um, so at that point I started watching a lot more high level video, uh, before that, I'm not sure I watched a whole a whole ton of, of game tape, but I came home and I started watching uh, like at least an hour a day of, of game tape on YouTube. Not necessarily of ourselves, but of like of teams at the highest level. So I watched a lot of like Iranian play. So like in Sydney volleyball, the top teams are Iran, Bosnia, and um, 
and Russia. Those are, those are the three top teams they have been for, for decades at this point. So, you know, I'd watch games from, uh, from, from London. I, I watched games from, from Rio and I just started to see and, and try to read, you know, in what situations do their attackers try to score? In what situations do they try to just put, keep the ball in play, right? Reading that it's not their opportunity. Keep the ball in play. It's better than, you know, trying to slam a ball and getting um, stuff blocked, right? Um, and, and just seeing that not every, not one of, not one, every one of their shots is just a howitzer, right? They, they had a lot more finesse in their game than, than I did, right? I had one or two shots, maybe I could hit a line shot, I could hit a cross shot. But, you know, like, <clears throat> when, I went to, when I went to Germany, I was training with the guys there, and I remember uh, Stefan coming up to me after I got blocked a few times. And, and he's, like, explaining to me what's obviously looking back on it right now. It's very simple. He's like, don't ever really try to crush a ball to five. Whether you're going one-on-one with the block against the block, or you're going up against two blocks that's blocking line or two blocks that's blocking cross. Like there's always a hand in that position. And in that moment, I was just like, oh, aha, I had a eureka moment. Like, yeah, don't hit that shot. Hit the harder cross shot or like the sharper cross or like a hit, or, um, or hit down the line. And those are available shots. But it's like if you're getting stuff blocked going up against one guy because you try to crush it to five because you thought it was open and then he jumped in the lane, like that's your fault because that's really not open, right? And it's about trying to realize that, you know, yeah, you know, maybe in practice those plays work, but when you get to the international level where guys have those reads where, you know, there's they're smart enough to understand, you know, if I show this guy cross, he's probably gonna show, you know, try to hit cross and that can jump to his lane and block him, right? And, uh, you know, up to that moment, I hadn't really had that sort of experience when I was, when I was practicing with, uh, like with our squad here, like, I'm not saying that they're, they're not good. Obviously we have, uh, you know, like Doug's an amazing blocker and he has those abilities. He's able to make those reads and like Austin's as, as well. But like, you know, some of our other guys weren't playing the game at that level. You know, it's, it was becoming, you know, playing the game within the game. Like everyone always says the cliche, like, you know, my sport is 90% mental and 10% physical. Like it, it's becoming, it's becoming to that point now where I develop my physical body to the level where I can actually play the mental game now, right? Like I'm no longer having to think about like, oh, I need to bring my elbow up here so I can spike a ball. Like all that stuff's becoming second nature. And now I'm just able to focus on, okay, well, like what do I think the blocker is going to do? And like, how do I manipulate the block so that I can score in that situation? Yeah, this is awesome to hear about your personal process. And, I, and I'm glad you mentioned earlier, one of the challenges is you, you kind of had to create your own training group and you're training here in Toronto at TPASC. And uh, I'm curious, are you in communication with the rest of the squad or is Coach Smith helping you guys work on things? Like, I'm curious with a camp space team like this, how are you guys remaining accountable to each other without judging the other guys, if that makes sense? Like you're putting in your work and you're motivated, but you're, you're supporting maybe some of the guys who are in Edmonton or across the country, but you're not you're not judging them if you don't see or hear from them that they're not, they're not grinding the same way you are. Right. Like how do you feel being a part of a camp space program and knowing that everybody's working together, even though you can't feel connected or see it every day. Right. So like, you know, the biggest thing for me has been 
you know, realizing that never, not everybody has the same opportunities or, or the same situation as me. So for me, this is pretty much like what I do. Like I am a full-time athlete. I have the ability to, to train full-time. I don't have a full-time job. This is, this is all I do. I understand that um, a lot of my teammates do have full-time jobs. They have a nine-to-five. They have to go out. They have to grind. And, and then after that, they still have to try to figure out, you know, like the volleyball aspect, right? Whether it's, do I get in the gym and lift weights today? Do I try to figure out this court situation? I'm like, you know, COVID's thrown another wrench into the process where here in Ontario, we, we are able to have high performance exemptions. So, you know, like uh, I was lucky to be able to secure court time at T-Pass and and get on court and do this kind of stuff but like you know even before that i was able to uh i was able to control my own um training like at home right whether i have a I have a very good partner that i live with that was willing to be uh my you know my my, my volleyball partner as well so she was reluctant at the beginning but eventually like we were able to do ball control like at home on a daily basis, we would start doing that like week in, week out. Um, you know, it wasn't a huge amount. It wasn't like, uh, you know, the same as being on court and, and doing anything, but like she would throw me balls, like she'd throw me balls. So I would set back, we'd do 25 of those. She'd throw me balls that I'd forearm pass. She'd throw me balls where I'd like one arm pass one way, one arm pass the other way. I'd do some like back setting and, and, you know, it wasn't as, uh, in depth and intensive as I uh, as I could have done maybe on court, but you know you, you have to you have to realize that uh, these are these are these are strange times, and, and we have to be be able to accept the things that we're able to do. Um, you know, control the controllables, right? We we can't we can't get mad at the things that we can't control. So here in Ontario, we have the high performance exemption. I'm able to get in the gym. For a long time in Alberta, where uh, I think four of our athletes are based right now, they, they didn't have that luxury. They didn't have the luxury of having that high performance exemption. So you know they they, they trained in different ways, right? They they would get in the gym and, and do their lifts and stuff like that. And like the way that we keep accountable to each other is like we we have a WhatsApp group that we communicate through. Um, you know, like everybody puts in like a weekly update of the stuff they've done that week. And so at least we can see, um, you know, like what each other is, is doing, like training wise. Uh, you know, we, even if the guy is just able to get out and, and get on the golf course and, you know, walk 18 holes and play a game of golf, that's it's better than nothing, right? Like if the only activity you're allowed to do is outside, then, then that's fine, right? And it's for me, it was a shift of of not focusing on what everybody else is doing and focusing on trying to find the, the best version of, of myself, to be honest. Um, you know, like I've, I've started preaching to maybe a little bit too much to, to some of my teammates that, you know, we aren't competing against anybody else on the court. Like we're, we're really competing with ourselves, right? It's like, are, are you the best version of yourself that you can be right now? When you look yourself in the mirror in the morning, that is literally your only competition. Like, you, you know, for a long time, pre-Montreal, my mindset was I need to be better than the sixth person on our court 
right? So that I can take his spot. After Montreal, my mindset shifted to what does our team need to be successful, right? Doug is a very strong uh, volleyball player. He has a great background. He's very knowledgeable. And he is our number one weapon. And all teams know this. So in my mind, I was like, I need to become uh, a competent enough, um, an effective enough attacker so that, you know, when we're in a, in a tight game situation where it's coming down to the wire, you know, the team on the other side doesn't know if the ball is going to go to Doug or if it's going to go to me. Or like, let's say they do cheat to Doug and now the ball gets set to me and I have a one-on-one. I know I can score in those situations now, right? And I think that was that was a huge eye-opener for myself was when I stopped focusing on what others were doing, you know? I mentioned to you before that like I'd have teammates that would tell me, oh yeah, I can't make it to practice. And as a result, instead of doing what I could, we would cancel practice. And then there'd be no sessions that day or that week or whatever it was. And and post that Montreal tournament, you know, I started shifting to not caring, right? Like especially after coming back from uh, from Germany, I, I was able to set up this court time. And at first it was uh, it, it was tough. So like I have athletes here in Toronto that are eager to, to get on court and that want to train, but unfortunately are, are not current members of the national team. Um, and as a result, the high performance exemption does not apply to them. So they're eager and they want to get on court and help me train and get better and get to the level where, where I want to be, but they're not able to be there. And then I have teammates uh, that are currently on the team that have, you know, different situations and, and you know, sometimes aren't, aren't able to get on court. Um, you know, like one of my other teammates that lives in Toronto doesn't drive, you know, he lives downtown and the, the Pan Am center is in Scarborough. It's, it's not a easy commute for him to get there. Um, you know, especially with COVID, um, you know, taking public transit is, is not necessarily ideal, right? Um, so, you know, I, I shifted to, you know, from focusing on what others were doing and, and literally started focusing on, on what I was doing and, and how I can improve myself and trying to, trying to be not the sixth best player on the team, but, you know, like one of the top three kind of thing, right? I feel like uh, making that sort of addition to the team, like, changes everything right and then i'm hoping that um you know eventually uh my progress can can be seen by my teammates and and maybe use that as a as a you know maybe a plan uh, a motivating tool or whatever for them to um you know to kind of progress as well i remember years ago uh, talking with some guys after a camp in, in a hotel room and it's like, you know, guys are talking about like how, you know, this person's not doing enough or that person's not doing enough. And it's like, it was just a trap, to be honest. Like we spent hours and hours and hours talking about, you know, we're doing so much and this person's doing not enough. And at the end of the day, like that's it's not helpful. That doesn't get us anywhere and it doesn't change our situation, right? Uh, you know, if you just keep focusing on what someone else isn't doing, it, it just it eats away at you and, and you get resentful, right? And I think the biggest thing is just 
focus on uh, what you can control. You can't control whether someone else is training or not, right? All you can do is when you get to camp, you know, show the work that you've put in by being being a better version of of yourself than you were at the previous camp, right? And eventually guys will notice that. Guys will see that. And, you know, the guys that want to be around and, and want to continue to train will, will pick it up and, and other guys might fall away, right? One of one of the things that um, really kind of like um, helped me with this whole idea of like somebody's not doing enough was was speaking to Mike Fragri, um, the wheelchair basketball coach at the National Training Center. Uh, there's a really good uh, wheelchair basketball player in Canada. He's considered the goat. His name's Pat Anderson. So I remember I was training at the National Training Center. And, um, at the time it was called the Academy. I was, uh, you know, I was doing my stuff and, and, and Frog came up to me and I don't remember how this conversation started, but he told me that like, you know, Derek, eventually like, you're not going to have to train like this. And like, I'm like, I'm kind of confused. And, and I asked him like, like, what do you mean? Right. And he's like, yeah, you know, like, so at the time I was working on fundamentals, you know, I was pretty much a young, you know, 15, 16 version you know, year old version of myself, uh, you know, going to my club practice and, and learning how to, how to forearm pass and, and learning how to volley a ball, learning how to serve a ball. But in the, in the basketball aspect, right. I was learning the proper form to shoot a ball. I was learning, you know, how to use a uh, wheelchair. Like I, you know, I had no chair skills before coming into wheelchair basketball. I, well, I'm not a daily wheelchair user. So I, I didn't really have that same level of knowledge as some of the other athletes. Right. So he explained to me that, you know, eventually, like, you'll have all this base that you already know. So, like, right now, when I was at the academy, we were training five days a week. It was a two-hour team practice every day, and it was also a a one-hour individual practice. Uh, On top of that, we were doing a lift three times a week, and we were doing prehab uh, two days a week. Um, And, you know, like, at least one day a week, we were doing nothing but chair skills. And chair skills are tough. It's, it's literally about like learning how to move in a way that's not natural and your body's not used to, right? But it makes sense to me now to, to do those things because if you're not used to it, if you don't understand how to, how to move your chair, then you might have the right IQ. You might know what you're supposed to do in a certain situation. But, you know, if you have to think about how to move your chair, it's too late. The guy already beat you and he's scoring points, right? So he explained to me that, you know, you, you won't always have to train at this level. So that was the time when I realized, like, a guy like Doug that's been around for 15 years doesn't have to train as many days or as many hours as a guy like me who's still trying to learn and get up to his level, right? Same thing with a guy like Austin, right? He's... He played at UBC on the standing men's team. He put in hundreds of hours in the gym before coming and, and playing on the sitting program, right? So for for anyone to be like, oh, well, this guy's not doing enough, I'm like, well, okay, like that's understandable. Like um, at the same time, like he won a gold ball for best setter. Like, did you win a gold ball for best attacker? You know, our libero won for, for best libero. Like, did you win for best server? So it's, it's easy to point fingers and to say like, hey, that guy's not doing enough. But I think it's a lot more difficult to, to be more self-reflective and see what you yourself aren't doing.
Man, this is so awesome. And I'm just looking at the time and we're way over time, which is good, but I did promise you an hour. But uh, yeah, no just as we're converting, hopefully our listeners into fans of Team Canada sitting, can you just let me and the listeners know you're you're off to a qualifier in Germany. It's June 1st to 5th. What's the format? Is there only one spot on the line? How many bids are there for the games? Like, what, what are you looking forward to in, in this last chance qualifier before Tokyo? Yeah, so, um, uh, yes, there's, there's originally there was seven teams um, that were going. Uh, it was Latvia, the U.S., um, Ukraine, Croatia, Germany, us, and one more team that I'm missing. I can't remember right the second. Irrelevant. Latvia ended up uh, pulling out. Um, maybe COVID concerns and that kind of stuff. Um, it's uh, one team goes. So it's um, we're in a pool. Oh, uh, Kazakhstan is the last team. So we're, we're in a pool. There's a two, pools, uh, two pools of three teams each. We're in a pool with Kazakhstan and Germany. Uh, these are both teams that are fairly strong. Um, and we play both of them on the first day. Uh, our, our whole tournament is literally decided in one day. We get there. Our, f- our first game is against Germany in the morning on the first game, uh, day of games. And our, our second game will be against Kazakhstan in the evening of that day. So, uh, We'll find out really quickly on, on you know whether we've uh, got a chance or not. If we, if we lose those games, we don't come out of the pools. There might be a few more games after that just to uh, figure out the full standings. But um, yeah, we just have to we just have to go and perform. Uh, what I'm excited for is, is to see the level of progression um, of everyone. Um, it's it's a different games than you know than any other year. Not everyone, uh, not every team has had the same limitations as us. Um, you know, there's a lot of teams that have full-time training centers, like Kazakhstan has a full-time training center, right? So their athletes have been training full-time all through COVID. Um, you know, Germany, they've been training uh, in their club teams, you know, three times a week. They've been getting together, uh, like usually once every two weeks to run an intensive uh, team camp. And uh, I just think that we, I want to see how we stack up against some of the, some of the better countries in the world. Um, You know, we play the U.S. a lot, you know, we play Brazil quite often, but we don't ever really get a lot of uh, opportunities to play other national teams. So my goal is to go there and perform at the best of our ability and, and to finally see our team uh, perform to its potential. Now, that's so cool to go back to one of your earlier stories about, you know, you having the opportunity to train with Germany. I didn't realize you guys would be going head to head with a spot in Tokyo on the line. It just shows how inclusive, like not only volleyball can be, but to be at a high level sitting player and still be involved. I think that's pretty cool that the the coach would allow you to attend training like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it also shows that, you know, I've I've had a level of growth uh, to the point where they see uh, benefit in me being at their training, right? So, you know, if I was the same person I was before that Montreal tournament, I think things would be different. And I don't think they'd be as open to having me um, come to their national uh, training camps. They'd still obviously allow me to come 
and train at the at the club level uh, at the club level, but maybe not at the you know at their national uh, training camps. Right, right. All right. And just a couple more questions. I, I did write down on my notes earlier when you mentioned you played uh, club here in Toronto for the Blues. I'm curious. Was George Shermer around, ready, the Shermer brothers? Like, what era of the Blues did you play with? Like, who else would have oh, been on your man. club team? I, I wish that I could answer this question. I'm horrible with names, and I'm not going to – I'm not – this was when I was, like, 17, 18 years old. I'm 39 right now. That's 20 years ago. I'm, I'm not going to – I'm not going to try to remember everyone's. I'm sorry. No, all good. All good. And, and we'll get you out of there uh, with this one. So obviously we, we've learned all about your career. We, we learned that you're, you're on team Canada for sitting volleyball. You're a high level basketball player, but man, something funny or odd must've happened along the way. So I was hoping you could tell us one more story just to give <laughs> us a laugh before we let you go. All right. So I guess I'm going to, I'm going to expose one of my teammates here. I'm not going to use his <laughs> name or anything, but um, we were at a, we were at a training camp and we had a fairly fairly intensive sports psych session. Uh, you know, maybe it was like an hour, an hour and a half long, and everybody was just just done after the session. And uh, you know, he, he decides that he wanted to, I guess, um, bring a laugh to everyone's, you know, maybe a smile to everyone's face. So he decides that he was going to fake hitting his head on a door jam. So uh, he runs up to this door, jumps. Looks like he put his hand in front of his forehead, but apparently has more hops than he realized. Smashes his head against the door jam, lands, and then he's like holding his head. Everyone's like laughing. He's like, oh, ha, 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 you're so funny. Like, yeah, good joke, good joke. Puts his hand down and turns out that he actually hit his head on the door jam, and he actually like split his forehead open. And yeah, everybody had a little bit more of a laugh after we realized he wasn't concussed and wasn't seriously injured. But, uh, yeah, we, we all had a pretty good laugh at his expense after that. <laughs> That's awesome. It just goes to show you, even though you're at the highest levels, you leave a meeting, and guys are just going to be goofy and silly no matter what level you're playing at. So I'm glad he was okay, but I can picture teammates of, of any sport <laughs> doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, 100%, right? Just trying to be, you know, guys will be guys, right? Boys will be boys. Oh, man. Well, this is awesome. I would encourage any of our listeners to definitely follow you on Instagram. You do post a lot, which is kind of educating me on the sitting game, but also showing how hard you're working and just shows that like with, with three guys, you can still get a lot done in the gym. So hopefully some some followers convert to you and and then we can obviously keep an eye on you when you're in Germany and support the squad because a, a lot of good things coming and best of luck in that qualifier. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And um, for anyone that wants to know, my Instagram handle is at Derek Simonowitz, D-A-R-E-K. S Y M O N O W I C Z. I made it really difficult. Don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure it's in the show notes so they can do a quick click or maybe a copy and paste. But uh, thanks again awesome. for taking the time and, and telling us your story today. Yeah, thanks for having me.